Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Robert Ferris and his toothpick case. We start our conversation today with a scene from Sense and Sensibility. Marianne and Eleanor have been in London as Mrs. Jennings guests, and Willoughby has jilted Marianne, and Colonel Brandon has revealed his own history with Willoughby. So Marianne, at this point in time, is pretty much over London and everything else. <laughs> yes. Which is understandable. Very. But one morning, she and Eleanor go to a jeweler's shop on Sackville Street to, quote, negotiate for the exchange of a few old-fashioned jewels of her mother. Once they arrive, they see a lot of people waiting, so they choose the counter where there is only one person ahead of them, and wait. So here is the passage from the book. One gentleman only was standing there, and it is probable that Eleanor was not without hope of exciting his politeness to a quicker dispatch. But the correctness of his eye and the delicacy of his taste proved to be beyond his politeness. He was giving orders for a toothpick case for himself until its size, shape, and ornaments were determined, all of which, after examining and debating for a quarter of an hour over every toothpick case in the shop, were finally arranged by his own inventive fancy. He had no leisure to bestow any other attention on the two ladies than what was comprised in three or four very broad stairs. At last, the affair was decided. The ivory, the gold, and the pearls all received their appointment. And the gentleman, having named the last day on which his existence could be continued without possession of the toothpick case, drew on his gloves with leisurely care and bestowing another glance on the Miss Dashwoods, but such a one as seemed rather to demand than express admiration, walked off with a happy air of real conceit and affected indifference. Wow. <laughs> What a guy. What a gem. <laughs> he seems like a real delight. So quick shout out to all the listeners who requested this episode. Several of you have wanted to hear about Robert Ferris and his toothpick case. Mm -hmm. Also, we have some listeners who have requested some information about Gray's The Jewelry Shop. Mm -hmm. So this episode is for all of you. Yes. Toothpicks have been around probably as long as humans. They serve an obvious function in removing stuck detritus from teeth. Yum. In <laughs> Austin's time, they were sort of your go-to option for dental hygiene. And they could be made of anything, really. Wood, bone, and quill, all being common options. And they really do start becoming luxury items in the 17th century. So by the 18th and 19th century, they could, unsurprisingly, after reading this passage be really fancy items or accessories. And much like we discussed in our episode on Regency Scrabble, depending on the materials used, these luxury objects could be very much a small portable symbol of empire and colonization. These posh toothpicks could be made of silver or gold or ivory with an ornate handle on one end. So sometimes these would even be jewel encrusted. And this trend had been around for a while there's actually a great example of a super fancy toothpick from about 200 years prior to Austin's day. It's actually a pendant 
in the shape of a mermaid. So it has the golden head of a mermaid, then the body or torso of the mermaid is pearl, and then at the waist there are all these gold and jewels before it tapers into the tail with green enamel, with the tail as the gold pick. (laughs) Her little fins in your teeth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're sticking the fins into your teeth. (laughs) And again, this is meant to be worn as like a pendant, like a necklace. So it's essentially a bedazzled toothpick necklace that you hang around your neck. (laughs) So fancy, so Mm -hmm. elegant. The accessory you need for your next outing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So during the late 18th and early 19th century, you would typically have your toothpicks concealed in your fancy toothpick case instead of out in the open. Although you might have a chain to attach it to your clothing, like a watch or something, but you usually didn't have the bedazzled toothpick jewelry, like hanging from your neck at this point. And even with the chain, it would be attached to the case still. It wouldn't just be like, you know, your loose toothpick rattling around in your pocket. (laughs) Gotta keep track of that thing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There are also examples that instead of the really slender stick that we might think of, there were some that were retractable like pocket knives. Mm -hmm. So the material was expensive, but then there would also be fancy design work to make the object ornate. Pocket knife toothpick. Don't they still make those? Like some of the Swiss army knife, like keychains that have like the little toothpick that you can pull out of it. Yeah, for sure. Those vibes. Like the toothpick on like a Leatherman or Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very cool. So according to Mara J. Graber in her book, What Have We Here? The Etiquette and Essentials of Lives Once Lived from the Georgian era through the Gilded Age and beyond, she says that retractable toothpicks were often also made of bone. She writes, quote, They were commonly made by French prisoners during the Napoleonic Wars. Hand-carved and mainly made of chicken bones, a cottage industry of sorts grew. French prisoners kept in English prisons from 1795 to 1820 used leftover soup bones and anything else that came into their hands. So basically, they would use these bones to craft luxury items like a toothpick or a toothpick case or these retractable ones and use those to barter with guards for additional luxuries. So there's some random Napoleonic War history for you. But if this passage from Sense and Sensibility tells us anything, it tells us that Robert Ferris, who is initially just this anonymous fop, is only interested in the finest of luxury goods. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So no bone-made toothpick for him. (laughs) He probably had some sort of ostentatious toothpick. But noticeably, that is not what he is purchasing in this scene. He is interested in purchasing a toothpick case. And now we finally come to it. (laughs) Now we're here, yes. So (laughs) if the height of luxury at this time was to have a fancy jeweled toothpick, Then, according to Laura White, in her chapter, From Jeweled Toothpick Cases to Blue Nankeen Boots, Austin, Consumerist Culture, and Narrative, she tells us, A jeweled case for one's jeweled toothpicks seems to reside at an even higher level of inane, conspicuous consumption. Which, you know, obviously, Robert Ferris is all about. That's sort of his whole thing. It's, yeah, it's the only thing that we really know about him in terms of character. (laughs) And lucky for all of us, we still have lots of examples of toothpick cases from this era. Mm -hmm. So we have a good sense of what exactly Robert Ferris was shopping for. Mm -hmm. So toothpick cases came in all sorts of luxury materials, as this description from Sense and Sensibility implies. 
They were oblong cases with a hinged top or sometimes cylindrical tubes with a removable cap. And the most luxurious ones from this era, and most likely the kind that Robert is looking at, were the oblong cases. And these would usually be lined with velvet on the inside with a mirror embedded on the hinged top so you could, you know, look at your teeth while you're doing this. And the outside then could be as ostentatious as you can imagine. They were often made of ivory, gold, or silver and could be jewel-encrusted. Robert's final selection, remember, is made of ivory, gold, and pearls. Ivory would often be used to also create relief images on the top of the cases, so ivory with then maybe some enamel covering it so that the relief would come through. And there are examples of, of this at the V&A, and they have like full landscape scenes on the top, as well as like jeweled embellishments. There are also examples of toothpick cases made of ivory, but with Wedgwood Jasperware reliefs with gilt frames, or cases with inlaid hair as a love token or personal memento. <laughs> hey, babe, I love you. Please take care of your teeth. <laughs> We discuss a bit more about Wedgwood in our episode, The Thing About General Tilney's Breakfast China, and more about hair jewelry in our episode, The Thing About Edward's Hair Ring with Dr. Sally Holloway. Great extra context for these things, right? Yes. So now let's talk a bit more about how this toothpick case reference is functioning within the narrative of sense and sensibility. One of the interesting things to note is that this entire scene is taking place in a very fashionable shop in London. Austin tells us that they are in Gray's in Sackville Street, which was a real location. According to Laura White, quote, Gray's was the most fashionable jewelry shop in London, and Thomas Gray, its owner, was favored by the Prince Regent. For instance, Gray made the future George IV a spectacularly lavish jeweled badge for his Order of the Garter sash in 1787, and for it received the princely sum of 403 pounds, 15 shillings, sixpence. So this makes sense then, that this is a very busy, very fancy establishment. And that's why Eleanor is initially having to wait to be assisted. This is the hot place yeah. to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another really interesting aspect of the scene is that we get all this detail about this rude guy shopping for his toothpick case without actually knowing that this is Robert Ferris. So we don't learn his identity until later in the novel when several of the characters are all at the same musical party and Eleanor encounters him again. Quote, She perceived among a group of young men the very he who had given them a lecture on toothpick cases at Gray's. <laughs> Charming. He addressed her with easy civility and twisted his head into a bow, which assured her as plainly as words could have done that he was exactly the coxcomb she had heard him described to be by Lucy. Hmm. Interesting, Lucy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Happy had it been for her if her regard for Edward had depended less on his own merit than on the merit of his nearest relations. <laughs> it's like, listen, your sister sucks, your mom sucks, your brother sucks, right? I love the fact that Austin uses this as a strategy to get this really detailed scene of Robert and his toothpick case before we get the real introduction. Like the fact that this moment where it's finally revealed who he mm -hmm. is, that we get to just kind of like be like, ah, he's awful. Okay. It's kind of a brilliant strategy on Austin's part to do that before we meet him. 
and Sarah Common in her article, Bringing Her Business Forward, Jane Austen and Political Economy, explains why Austen likely makes this narrative choice, arguing that it really tells us everything we need to know, and we don't have to spend any additional time getting to know his character after this. We understand everything at this point. So she goes on to say, A strong contrast between Eleanor and Robert's behavior, wealth, and status is immediately drawn in this brief scene, with Eleanor presumably seeking to supplement the family's reduced wealth through the sale of unnecessary and unfashionable jewels, while Robert is fastidiously pursuing the ornamentation of such a trifling object as that of a toothpick case. Eleanor loses no time in bringing her business forward, while Robert vacillates with a face of sterling insignificance. It's really a character indictment that the larger novel seems to focus on generally, which is that wealth and social status are really quite empty without more personal substance beneath all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In D.A. Miller's book, Jane Austen or The Secret of Style, which, by the way, dedicates an entire chapter to Robert Ferris and his toothpick case. So like, these are our people, basically. Oh, definitely. Oh, for sure. He points out that, quote, like his toothpick case, Robert is not quite so indifferent or so vacuous as he would appear. Somewhere inside him, he harbors, if not a toothpick, some other little prick busy throwing indifference and vacuity into aggressive high relief. <laughs> Eleanor is furious that he pays her no consideration because he does pay her enough to rub her nose in the fact. Oh, <laughs> so good. I love how incisive that is, right? That, that he's like, okay, yeah, Eleanor has a right to be a little bit upset mm -hmm. about this. And we have a lot of other scholars who have lots of things to say about this. So E.M. Dadla's in the article, Form Affects Content, Reading Jane Austen, takes this idea that Miller presents, this idea of parallels between Robert and his toothpick case, a bit further, stating, quote, Austen's point is that Robert confuses wealth and social standing with personal worth and merit, that he is as pinheaded as the toothpicks for which he purchases <laughs> an over-elaborate receptacle, as if to conceal their insignificance. And then here's my favorite quote from Dadla's, quote, Manifestly, Robert, in all his sartorial resplendence, is just like the toothpicks in his case to be, an insignificant little prick all dressed up. <laughs> oh, they do not hold back. Oh, good. Who says that academic writing isn't funny? I right? don't understand. <laughs> It's so funny because it's so true. It's just like, mm. yes. It's like, okay, that's, there's no other way to describe that now. Got it. It really, really hits. <laughs> In a final parting observation about this toothpick case scene, although really, what more is there to be said after that? <laughs> well, that was a pretty great punchline, right? Yeah. Dadless summarizes, what are toothpicks good for exactly? Dislodging food from between the teeth. What is Robert Ferris good for? In Sense and Sensibility, he dislodges his older brother from the clutches of Lucy Steele and inserts himself in Edward's place in her affections. It is the only useful act Robert Ferris performs in the course of the novel. Mic drop. Like, it's just <laughs> I love it. so good. So, as we've already demonstrated, we really do have a good laugh at how much scholars and Jainites seem to have to say about this scene. It's one of those things that is kind of a passing. It's a passing mention, but then when you really look at it, you're like, wow, this, it says so much about him as a character. Yeah. And, and again, it's the way that she uses it where you have to like, 
once you find out that it is Robert Ferris, then you have to go back and read the scene because then mm-hmm. you're like, oh, he's exceptionally awful in that scene. And now we have context on who he is, where he's coming from. So it's just brilliant writing, brilliantly crafted on Austin's part. The fact that it isn't just some kind of like random character that she sort of inserted to be like, oh, you know, life in London. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a random lampoon. It's very intentional. It's somebody who is actually like essential to the plot, you know, <laughs> in, a, in a kind of getting the wheels turning sort yeah. of way. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, once you've got that scene, again, you just, we don't have to learn much more about Robert Ferris. We just, we can take that at face value. And that person is an insignificant little prick, all dressed up. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And we have this bit of mail from listener Nicole, who listened to our episode on the bass and bath and wrote in to say, You shared a delightful idea about ducks waddling around in Regency clothing. I am a clip artist, and I could not resist the idea of a Regency duck inspired by the Colin Firth Mr. Darcy. Please find it attached and enjoy. And so Nicole drew a delightful little clip art Darcy duck. Oh my goodness. Which we are positively tickled Mm -hmm. by. And we'll be sure to share it out on Instagram and Twitter for anyone who wants to see it. Yes. And stay tuned for our next episode where we will be talking about the great Mrs. Reynolds and her most excellent house tour abilities. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.